All right, you guys ready? All right, we are in Ezekiel 39. We're going to look at 39 and uh, discuss a little bit about some of the things we discussed last time in Ezekiel 38. So, um, in case you don't know, I am uh, abnormal. So, when I study the word, one of the challenges that... uh, that I try to focus on is this idea that we'll allow the word to say what it's trying to say. And there are a lot of other people, and Calvary Chapel's included in this, who allow the system, whatever their system is, their, their way of uh, highlighting the events, in, in our case tonight, highlighting the events of eschatology, they'll allow that to um, define interpretation. And if we do that, we're backwards. So we want the Bible to say what it says, and our systems have to adjust. Does that make sense? The system of our systematic theology does not govern Scripture. The Scripture should govern our systematic theology. And so as we come and as we look at 38 and 39, I'm not, I don't know that you'll find anybody else in Calvary that, uh, that believes as I do that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not talking about a Russian invasion that's going to happen just prior to the rapture that kicks off the tribulation period because none of those things are in the text. What is in the text is a phrase, Gog and Magog. And Gog and Magog is going to be spoken about in Revelation 20, isn't it? And most of the time, when we look at the New Testament, we say that the New Testament is a commentary on the Old, especially if it talks about something that was mentioned in the Old Testament, right? By name. As we look at Gog and Magog, if you remember last time, we kind of went through the history, the historical views that occurred throughout time on who people thought Gog was. And you'll see it shifting. The, The identity of Gog... And Magog will shift depending on who the bad guy is in the world at the time. Does that make sense? So the view of Russia and the Russian invasion and the things people talk about was birthed out of the Cold War when Russia was a bad guy. You guys remember there was some books that all came out about that time talking about the rapture, late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey uh, that were defining and taking a look. And the, and, it, and I am in no way uh, saying there's anything wrong with those. What those books did is get me excited about the word. And then I wanted to understand, is this what the word is talking about? And as I've studied, I realized that, that, that he may be right. I'm not saying he can't be right. But I am saying it's not there. Russia's not in the text. The text of Ezekiel 38 describes all the enemies of Israel and the circle about them. In Revelation chapter 20, it uses this phrase. It should sound familiar to you. He will bring them from the four corners of the earth, which means they're coming from where? Everywhere. All in one fluid motion against um, Mount Zion, against Jerusalem. And... Ezekiel 38 and 39, in my opinion, Ezekiel 38 and 39 depict the same battle 
that we see in Revelation 19 and we see in Revelation 20. It is a battle that is the end of the wicked. And it coincides with the return of Christ. And this was a prophetic word to the people in exile. Telling them, hey, you guys, are not only are you guys coming back into the land, but one day your king will come. And you'll be victorious against all your enemies. And he will rule and reign forever. So as we look tonight, we, I just want to remind us that the idea of Gog and Magog is um, in ancient Near Eastern terms, it is the cosmic north. It is the, for you and I, simple term we can understand, it's the boogeyman. It is symbolic of all supernatural evil in opposition to God. It is Leviathan. The same Leviathan, Isaiah 27, when Isaiah says that Yahweh is going to destroy Leviathan. He's going to cut the head off the twisted serpent. He's going to cut the head off the serpent in the sea. When we read about uh, Revelation, the Bible talks about a beast, right? Picturing the Antichrist, a beast. Where does that beast come from? It rises up out of the sea. The, the symbology, the symbolism in Scripture holds, holds uh, uh, true all the way through. It doesn't change. It doesn't bypass. You're still talking about Leviathan, which symbolizes the supernatural evil in opposition to the God. What's the Antichrist? Has there been many people who have been against Christ as leaders? But when we talk about the Antichrist, what are we talking about? The symbolism of supernatural evil that will rise on the earth and lead the earth in rebellion against God in the last days. The symbolism carries all the way through. It's, and you're going to see the exact same thing in Revelation. Right? But how is Satan described? The great red what? The great red dragon. Huh. Yeah. Like Leviathan. That dragon of the sea. The symbolism of supernatural evil in opposition to Christ. And what will happen one day to that great red dragon? Yeah, he's going to be cast where? The lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. There is a day coming. The Bible calls it the day of the Lord. When God will achieve ultimate victory over all the forces of evil in opposition to him. There will be a day. That is the day of the Lord. And it coincides with the second coming of Christ. When he comes back, he came the first time as the lamb. He comes the second time as the lion. Anybody afraid of a lamb? Not very many. I, I could probably be scared of a lamb. Depends on how big it is. But I'm going to be scared of a lion no matter what it looks like. The symbolism holds true all the way through. So Gog and his hordes are part of this cosmic north, a symbol of supernatural evil. There will be, please hear me, there will be human participants, but they're not important. I know a lot of people want to say, well, when you see Russia make this thing, 
this peace treaty here. Look, stop looking at all that stuff. When you see forces of evil rise up, lift your heads. Because it could be the day. doesn't matter who the bad guys are. I told you once upon a time, the Jews said it was the Christians who were Gog and Magog. In the 1000s, you know what Christians were doing in the 1000s? It would make the Jews think Gog and Magog was Christians. A little thing called the Crusades. Once upon a time, the church was the bad guy. Greeks have been the bad guy. Babylonians have been the bad guy. Assyrians have been the bad guy. But the point, the one thing that holds true, if you've been with me as we've gone through the prophecies and the oracles of the nations, the one thing that holds true is the power behind the human. That's still the same power, right? That's rising up. And so these are some of the things that we're going to be looking at. So we don't want to ignore. When the New Testament brings something up, we don't want to ignore it. We want to allow it to tell us, to describe for us what's going on. That's why John in Revelation 20 used Gog and Magog at that, at that next battle, at that battle in Revelation 20 after the, the establishment of the kingdom. And you have a, another rebellion spoken of, which, by the way, is a big problem for us pre-millennialists. Pre we'll, we'll solve that another day. But the, but the reality is it's Gog and Magog. The same language used in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is used in Revelation 19 about the battle of Armageddon. Those aren't accidental. John's drawing on his understanding of Scripture. And his audience would have understood those metaphors as well. Just like you and I would understand ours today. Right? So we want to have eyes to see the things that Scripture is laying out for us. And I pray, uh, if nothing else, be challenged and search the Scriptures. Notice I didn't say search your books. Go look up the late great planet Earth. Hal Lindsey will not agree with me. I'm just talking about what the Bible says. So we look. Ezekiel 39.1, Now you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now there's the phrase again. Now the way that a lot of people have pulled Russia from this is there's a Hebrew word there called Rosh. Rosh is used 600 times in the Bible, and every time it's used as a noun describing uh, the, the uh, a, oftentimes a level of king or prince. So prince of princes, king of kings, chief prince. Now the Septuagint took Rosh, nobody knows why, 270 B.C., and they just transliterated it. And it says prince of Rosh, prince of Meshach, prince of Tubal. And during the Cold War, people said, oh, Rosh, that's... that's uh, the people, the Scythians, and the Scythians settled down in Russia. And so Rosh becomes Russia, and Russia is going to be part of Gog and Magog. Well, it wasn't hard for us to believe, was it? How Russia's been the bad guy a long time. Should the Lord tarry, we might find it being China before it's all over. Or something else. 
but the supernatural power is what we're focused on. The word Rosh, 600 times, it's never used as a place name. 600 times. That's a lot of times to not be a place, but to be uh, an adjectival noun used as we see it here uh, as the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. He says in verse 2, And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north. Now this cosmic north is the idea of supernatural evil. It's always every time someone invades Israel, they're going to be called enemies from the north. Babylon, when they invade Israel, they're called enemies from the north. But you realize Babylon's in the east. The point is the metaphor. What's the metaphor? This is supernatural evil coming in the skin of the Babylonians against the nation of Israel. And in, this, in, the, in the case of the judgment from God, this is from God and it brings and ends in their exile among the nations. Here, the Lord is saying to Gog, I'm going to bring you down. In Ezekiel 38, he uses this phrase, I'm going to put hooks in your mouth, and I'm going to drag you down to this battle. And that is uh, pulling from the metaphors in Isaiah and Jeremiah and in Ezekiel about Leviathan. God says of Leviathan, that, that beast that symbolizes supernatural evil, that God says, I'm going to slay Leviathan on the mountains, and I'm going to feed the birds with its flesh. That should sound familiar because that symbolism is going to continue through the text as we look at it today. So he says, I'm going to drive you forward. I'll bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north. I'll lead you against the mountains of Israel, and I will strike your bow with your, from your left hand and your arrows out of your right. Now the point that the Lord's saying is he's going to neutralize Gog's offensive ability. So whenever this battle happens... It's not going to be a battle. Let's say they were, you picture a, a horde of archers riding to battle, carrying a bow in one hand and the arrows in the other, and then at the same moment they drop them all. The point that God's saying is no one has any power over him. No nation, no political party, None of the wicked kingdoms of men, and they have all been wicked, have power over Christ. They will all do the same thing. They will bow the knee, and they will proclaim, Jesus Christ is Lord. So the Lord says, you're not, you're not going to be able to do anything. The battles at Armageddon, what does the Bible say in the battle of Armageddon? You take some time this week and look at it. Jesus Christ can return the sword out of his mouth. Is anybody fighting for him? No, it says he's going to destroy them with the sword of his mouth. He's just going to speak. And it's done. Revelation 20, when we see the battle of Gog and Magog at the end of the kingdom age, and we see this whole thing being wrapped up, it says they're going to come up against, they're going to surround the city from the four corners of the earth. The whole city is surrounded and fire comes down out of heaven and devours them. And the next scene is a great white throne judgment. There's no battle. 
There is no battle against the You will fall on the mountains, and all the hordes and the peoples who are with you, I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort. Revelation chapter 19, what does the Lord do? Prior to that battle, he says, he tells his angels, call all the birds of the air and tell them to gather for the great, the feast of the great God. So all the birds come to gather for the feast of the great God. The feast at the time when all these armies are put to nothing. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort, the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. This will happen. This is how the, the final battle will be done. And they will steady war no more. Revelation 19, verse 17 says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and captains, the flesh of mighty men and horses, their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Same exact phrasing is used in Isaiah. Same exact phrasing used in Ezekiel to describe the meal that occurs when Leviathan, that great serpent, is slain. Now, it may be a gruesome picture, but it is for us to understand something. It's for us to understand that on the day when evil is destroyed, it is not only destroyed, it will be utterly consumed, gone. It's over. There's not a little piece left. That's why Leviathan is consumed in the mythologies. Well, the reason why Leviathan is eaten by the, the beasts and the birds is so that it would be an end. The supernatural evil is over. The final battle, that final conclusion that the Lord lays out. Now, when John writes about it in Revelation 19, he is absolutely drawing from Ezekiel 39 and Ezekiel 38. And his audience knows that. The people who are reading it, they're familiar with the scriptures. This is not, these, these are things, if you've been with us going through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights, especially the times through the prophets, you've heard me talk about this over and over and over and over. Because the symbol is there throughout the prophets on that day when the Lord will once and for all finish with supernatural evil it will be finished this will take place in verse 5 he says for I have spoken declares the Lord look what he says in verse 6 I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely at the coastlands and they will know I am the Lord and my holy name I will make known in the midst of the people of Israel I will not let my name be profaned anymore and the nations shall know I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Now, why is it that his name's not going to be profaned anymore? Because there will be no more rebellion. It will be over. It's done. It's not because finally the wicked will have learned and they will succumb. No. The wicked will be forced and then they will be devoured. What's the end result of a person whose name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life? What do they call that place? The lake of fire, right? There'll be no more. There's no coming out. 
it will be finished. Now, when he says, I will send fire, he says, fire from heaven is going to devour Magog. Now, Gog's the leader. Magog is the land. So the, the picture is there's this battle. The bow falls out of their hands, arrows. They're not able to do what they want to do. Then God sends fire from heaven, and it not only devours them, it devours the whole land. What's it say in Revelation 20? Verse 7, it says, Now when the thousand years were ended, Satan is released from his prison. And he comes out to deceive the nations that are where? In the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. Now when John uses that phrase, you guys are aware that it points directly to Ezekiel 38 and 39, right? Uh, that's it. Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and they surround the camp of the saints. But fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. That's all the battle. How did it occur in Ezekiel 39? Fire comes down. Fire comes down. And they will know I am the Lord. Now listen, verse 8. Behold, it is coming. It will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. That is the day. Throughout scripture, there is a day. It's called the day of the Lord. It's the day of his judgment. In the New Testament, it's called the day of Christ. That's why I would say that the point of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is dealing with the second coming. When Jesus puts his feet on the earth, when he sets down, it will be once and for all done. Finished. No more. The battle will be concluded. It will be wrapped up in the day of Christ, the day of the Lord. That is the day of which I have spoken. Earlier in Ezekiel 38, he said, my prophets have been speaking about this day for a long time. And every single prophet talks about the day of the Lord. The day of God's judgment. There are many days of the Lord when a nation is judged, when something happens uh, here local, but there's also the global one. We know those ones because the Bible talks about it in cosmic destruction metaphors. You've heard them before. The earth will quake. Every mountain will fall down. Every island will move out of its place. The stars will fall out of the heavens. Does that sound like there's a day after that? You guys all saw the movie Armageddon, right? That was one little bitty meteor, not all the stars. So it's a, it's a language that is describing the day of the Lord. Now the Bible uses another phrase so that you understand you won't miss it. Every eye will see. Every eye will see. Could you miss it if there's a global earthquake? Would you miss it if every mountain fell down? Would you miss it if the sun went dark and the moon turned to blood? No, probably not. That's the point of the language. Not a blood moon. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about language that says you're not going to miss the day of the Lord. 
There will be nobody who wakes up the day after and goes, I didn't know it was the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord happened yesterday? How did I miss that? CNN gave no coverage to it whatsoever. That's not how it's going to be. Revelation chapter 6 talks about it, right? In fact, Revelation 6 through 19 is going to lay out a series of descriptions of the day of the Lord. So this great day, what is the point of the day of the Lord? It's judgment day for Israel. It's judgment day for the nations, and it's the final solution for the wicked. That's it. That's it. Now, my system doesn't like this. My system doesn't like Revelation 20. My system says to me, why is there another war after Armageddon? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever ask yourself, why is Satan loosed for a season? Why? Now, we've all come up with answers. I know you've heard all the answers. But I think if we're honest, that still sets wrong in my head. Now, if Ezekiel 38 and 39, Revelation 19 and 20 are all the same battle, it sits a little better. I still, it still doesn't fit smooth. Here's how we know when our system is right. It all fits. It's not, we don't just get to ignore some part, one part or another. It all fits. It all comes together like a beautiful mosaic, just like God intended it to be. And a lot of times the reason it don't fit is because we have a particular colored glass that we're looking at it through, and it's hard for us to think outside of the shapes that we're projecting on the text. So be good Bereans and say, okay, I want to understand and study and know. You're able. You don't need someone to tell you what they think. All of you have minds. All of you are able to read, right? And capable of understanding. And everybody who is not the Holy Spirit or the Lord God Almighty is fallible. Amen? Even Jackie. Jackie's been wrong more than once. So as we look, as we work our way through, he's talking about the day of the Lord, judgment day and the final solution for the wicked. Verse 9, then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears. They will make fires of them for seven years. Is seven a symbolic number? Most of the time, huh? They'll make they will make fires for seven years. They won't need wood so that they will not need to take wood out of the field. That's good because if this happens during Revelation, most of the wood's gone. You remember the judgments, Revelation 6 through 19, right? <clears throat> they will make fires of them for seven years so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down the forest for they will make their fires of their weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord. What's happening? Exactly what the Old Testament prophets talked about. They're going to burn the weapons. Why are they going to burn the weapons? 
you're not going to need them anymore. You don't need them. Why? Because the supernatural forces of evil have been defeated. Because there's no more Satan was loosed for a season. There's no more of that. The rebellion is done. It's finished. It's over. And they will steady war no more. They will beat their swords into plowshares. And so here they're burning them, the removal of the weapons. Now we talk about their burial. On that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. Wow, that is a phrase rife with history. The Obarim. That word, the travelers, it's not just people traveling. That's the word travelers that is used for those who are traveling from life to death. The Obarim. And the Obarim are associated with the Rephaim, the dead. The Rephaim, the Obarim. You remember the witch Endor? Yeah, that witch of Endor, she was a witch of the Ob, the dead. What did she talk to? She brought back spirits from the dead. Do you remember? Yeah, scripture talks about those spirits, describes them as the Rephaim in the Old Testament, the Obarim here in Ezekiel. This, the valley of the travelers, this word is going to put them in the place that is described in the Hebrew would make the readers of Ezekiel's time say they're all going to go to hell. Their grave will be the lake of fire. That's the New Testament term. The Old Testament term was this idea of the valley of the traveler, the one who travels from the realm of the living to the realm of the dead. We would describe it in Greek mythology as they're crossing what river? You guys remember? The river Styx. So they're going from, so if I said to you they're crossing the river Styx, it doesn't mean that there's really a river Styx and that there are spirits crossing it, but you'd know what I mean. They're going from the living to dead. They're going from the place of the living the supernatural forces of evil. Psalm 82 talks about God's destruction over the angelic forces and rebellion against him. And he declares to them, you will die like men. When we read Revelation 20, where's the place they die like men? Where does the devil go and the beast go and the false prophet go and all the people whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Where do they all go? They go to the lake of fire. They all go to the same place. You need to strike from your mind the Middle, e the Middle Ages view that somehow Satan's in charge there. Nobody's in charge there. Satan's not running around going, you know, I need to think about how I'm going. Is that Joe? <laughs> Satan, Satan is not running around in hell deciding what kind of torture someone should endure. Satan is being dealt with. There is no hierarchy in hell it is a place of outer darkness and the absence of all good things 
It's described as dark and fire because both of those things are bad. Right? If you're being burned, nobody likes that. If you're stuck in the dark, nobody likes that. We use all kind of words and metaphors to describe it, but nobody really knows what it's like because nobody's been there. I don't care how many YouTube videos you can find of a guy who says, I went to hell and came back. There is no hell yet. The great white throne judgment has not occurred. There may be souls in the grave awaiting judgment. And the way Jesus described it is still not great. But it's not hell yet. Hell is what we read about in Revelation chapter 20. And dead, the dead, the dead and the, in, uh, the, the sea and the dead give up their dead. Death and Hades give up the dead. And they all stand before the great white throne. And they will be, their names will be checked, whether or not they're written in the Lamb's book of life. And everyone whose name's not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire where the devil, the false prophet, and the, and the Antichrist are. That's what the Bible says. Nobody's running anything there. So when Ezekiel talks about the burial of the armies of Gog, he uses a metaphor, the Valley of the Travelers, which would have been understood in the ancient Near East in their mindset as, hey, these guys, their grave is going to be hell. Their grave's going to be hell. And it's, it's big. It's a big place because there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people in that army. There's a lot of people gathered. Look how he describes it. I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. <clears throat> Most people think he's talking about the Dead Sea, but it's hard to be absolutely assertive. It could be talking about the Mediterranean Sea. It could be talking about the Sea of Galilee. There's a few seas, right? <clears throat> the, for there Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the Valley of Hamon Gog. They say that's a play on words, on, on a word Jesus used when he was describing hell. Gehenna. Gehenna was a place Jesus used to describe hell because it's where the children of Israel killed their babies and threw out their trash. So he called it a place where the fires never quenched and the worm never dies. The valley of the son of Hinnom. So here, a lot of people think this is the, this is the description that he's given. Haman Gog, it's, it's, a, it's a word play in Hebrew. And so for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them. Seven, a symbolic number? Huh, interesting. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. And all the people of the land will bury them. And it will bring them renown on the day that I show my glory, declares the Lord. There will be a day of renown on that day as the Lord rules and reigns. Why is there a day of renown? Because evil's over. It's done. There's not another day for it. It's finished. It has, the pollution has been handled. Verse 14 says, they will set men apart to travel through the land regularly. 
to bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it, to bury those travelers. Isn't that an interesting way to talk about dead people? They're burying them. They're not really traveling. <laughs> you get it? He's going to be burying the travelers, these Obarim, those who were part of the battle, and those who, who, have, um, who have perished from the battle. They'll set men apart, and they'll bury the travelers so as to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, seven symbolic, at the end of seven months, they will make their search. And when these travel through the land and see anyone, and anyone sees a bone, and he'll set a sign by it, and the barriers will bury it in the valley of Hamon Gog. Does anybody get away? No. They all go to the same place. Is there any, pl- is there any evil that will escape the final judgment of God? No. Do they, they all go to the same place. Hamona is the name of the city. Thus shall they cleanse the land. How is the land cleansed? All evil is over. This is describing the last battle. Like the battle of Armageddon. Or the battle we read in Revelation chapter 20. As for you, son of man... Thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort, to all the beasts of the field. Assemble, come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. Pause. When the Bible talks about Jesus' return in the battle of Armageddon, there are two feasts talked about there. The feast of the great God and marriage supper of the lamb now this is not so we go I don't want to eat the flesh of people that's not what he's talking about he is talking about the total consumption of the evil it's over there's not scraps left there's not pieces anywhere on the ground They're gobbled up. They're gone. It's over. It's finished. And this is the language is used. It has nothing to do with the reality of what's eaten at the feast. The idea is the evil is totally consumed. It's gone. It's finished. And just in case in your mind you're going, well, if we eat evil, don't we become evil? No, you were evil before you ate it. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said, evil doesn't come from outside of you. Where is it? Evil's in, what did Jeremiah say? Your heart is basically good. No, what did he say? Your heart is deceitfully wicked. Right? So, as we look at it, it's not, uh, how is it that our heart gets cleansed? Who enters and lives in you? Your body is the temple of who? That's right, temple of the Holy Spirit. So God lives in you. So your body is now holy ground. You understand? Everything will be ended. Evil will once and for all be put down. Verse 18, you shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes, of rams, of lambs, of 
he goats, bulls, all of them, fat beasts of Bashan. Bashan, you may recognize from Psalm 22, is oftentimes used as symbolism of uh, demons. Um, Psalm 22, the bulls of Bashan are opening their mouths, gaping at Jesus while he's on the cross. You shall eat fat till you are filled. Drink the blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. You shall be filled at the table with horses, charioteers, mighty men, all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. When you have time, read Revelation 19, 17 through 21. And you'll hear the same language used in Revelation 19. You read Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. You'll see the same kind of language describing the return of Jesus. That's the section of scripture we talked about last time where he has treaden, trodden the winepress of the wrath of God alone. Jeremiah 46.10 talks about the day of the Lord as a day of vengeance. And Zephaniah 1.7-8 says that the day of the Lord is near and the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. What's being sacrificed that day? Evil. Supernatural evil is finally defeated. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me and I hid my face from them. He's saying the nations are going to look and they're going to go, wow. So it was really the iniquity of Israel, not the weakness of Yahweh that brought them into exile. Uh, so that he, they will know I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of the adversaries when they fell. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgression and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will not forget their shame or the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in the land with how many to make them afraid? None. None to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples, gathered them from the enemies, and vindicated my holiness in the sight of all the nations, they shall know I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations and assembled them back in their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. That day hasn't happened yet. And I will not hide my face anymore from them, when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So these are promises yet future of that ultimate victory that God will bring on the forces of supernatural evil described in a way that the people of the ancient Near East would understand it. Now, sometimes we come to those things and we don't understand the metaphors and we see helicopters and missiles, right? And a variety of other things. But if we take the time to understand a little bit about their cosmology, their view of the world, how they saw things come together, it might help all the other pieces fit like they should. Amen? 
Why don't you guys stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time we can come to your word and study. To see, God, you describe for us what I believe to be is that final battle. The end of rebellion. The next thing that you would say after this is, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw this beautiful city come down, prepared for the bride. New Jerusalem. The tree of life was there. The beauty of completion earth made perfect heaven restored fallen angels judged fallen man judged all men judged either by their own deeds or by the blood of Jesus Christ the Bible teaches there will be a day can watch the events of our world and say, nah, we should probably read through all this again. God, you describe for us this so that we would know, no matter how things get today, no matter how difficult the struggle or hard the battle, no matter how any of those things are, Lord, you tell us this so that we know there is coming a day when it will be over. And until that time, now is the time of salvation. Today is the day when you, as a child of wrath, just as I as a child of wrath came in the blood of Christ to be made clean. And it's not about anything you did or do. It's all about who you trust. And we walk patiently, enduring, occupying until he comes. Until the day we see his face, until that day when we won't miss it, the day of the Lord comes, the earth is washed, the curse is over, the child will play by the cobra's den and mom won't have to be afraid. The lion will eat straw just like the ox little child will be able to grab them by the ear and lead them across the field. There will be no war. There will be no strife. There will be the peace of Christ everywhere. That's the day we long for, Lord. Until we see that day, may we be diligent 
guidance of your word, studying to see whether or not these things are so. May we be Bereans searching the scriptures daily. May we be students rightly dividing. May you be glorified in the efforts we give to know you and your purposes in Jesus' name.